Well, we are going to, uh, we're going to spend uh, some time looking at the book of 1 John and the passages that were read. If you have a Bible, take it out. Turn to the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you on the round tables. Go pick one up. It's fine. Take it. Read it. It's yours. Um, But as we look at this passage, let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. It is life. It is life because it is your word. It comes from you, and you are not separate from your word, but you come to us in your word and all power. And so we pray that as we experience and look at your word, that it wouldn't simply be an academic exercise or a mental exercise, but it would be a a sacramental exercise. That is a very receiving of yourself. Come to us by your spirit, we pray, because that's the only thing that will give us life, the only thing that will change us. Do so for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, comes the judgment. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Judgment. What do we do about the judgment? How will you fare at the judgment? We have been looking at the book of 1 John, and we're concluding our study of it. And the book of 1 John is written that we might know, that we might have assurance that we have eternal life. And a subset of that is that John is writing to give us confidence, confidence in our relationship with God and confidence for the day of judgment. Look chapter 4 verse 17. John is writing so that we might have confidence at the judgment. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at our anxiety about the judgment. I want to look at our need for the judgment. And finally, I want to look at our confidence at the judgment. So that's for you note takers in here. So first, our anxiety about the judgment. I mean, let's be honest. Judgment is not something that is a um, popular idea today. In fact, it's very repugnant to most in our modern society. And you wonder, well, why is that? Well, you think all the psychological damage that comes from judgment and the idea of being judged and feeling judged and all that, right? And John writes so that we might have confidence at the judgment. And why why would he want to give people confidence at the judgment? What does that assume in 4.17? Well, it assumes that people aren't confident, that they're anxious, that they actually have fear. In fact, that's the point of verse 18, for fear has to do with punishment. You see, we're anxious about the judgment. We fear the judgment because because the judgment might mean that we're exposed and we won't fare too well. And I think deep down all of us know that. Some of us are readily aware of that. Others of us try to suppress it through false hubris, self-confidence, things like that. But deep down, I think we know that if our lives were judged, put under the microscope, 
they wouldn't come out so well, and we would be afraid. If you, if you want me to prove this to you, then um, let's just take a thought experiment that I like to do. What if I told you that after the service today, we would be showing a movie, and the movie is entitled My Life, and, uh, and guess who's the star? You are. And there's no, uh, you know, it's not, a, it's not trying to bait and switch or anything. The movie really is about your life. It's about everything that you've ever done in your life. It's about everything that you've ever said in your life. It's about everything that you have ever, guess, get this, we even have Morgan Freeman doing the internal narration of every thought you've ever had. Now, who wants to stick around for that movie? Everyone but you. Everyone but you. I don't want to stick around for that movie. If if I knew that movie was going to be played just of my last week, I would never come back to this church again. I'm dead serious. I would never, ever step foot anywhere near this church again if that movie was played of my last week. You see, if I told you that movie was being played, you would start to have an emotion right now. Fear. Anxiety. Because you know that other people would be looking on and they would be evaluating your life. And they would judge your life. And there would be consequences, a fallout. A fallout with your spouse. Fallout with your parent, fallout with your friends, a fallout with your brother or sister in Christ down the pew. There would be some kind of fallout, a consequence, and that gives us great fear. And that's why none of us would stick around for that movie, except why would everyone else stick around? You know why we would all stick around? The same reason we watch reality, reality TV, because it makes us feel better about our lives to look at other people's lives and their failures, which only confirms the reality that we're all deeply insecure about my life. And so the judgment, it gives us this deep anxiety for fear has to do with punishment, verse 18. And so we say, well, why don't we just get rid of this whole idea of judgment? I mean, it's so repugnant to our modern sensibilities. But we can't get rid of the judgment. That's what I want to suggest to you. Which brings us to my second point, our need for the judgment. See, you need the judgment, and you can't get rid of the judgment. Let let me explain. There's a philosopher named Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger pointed out that human beings are the only ones, the only only, uh, creatures that actually contemplate our own existence and why we exist. Right? We're the only thing in the world that asks, oh, what am I here for and why? Uh, that is that we are looking for a sense of purpose, meaning, value. We need that to live. We all do. Uh, but the problem is, is that the natural material universe cannot give us that. Did you know that? You can't find purpose, meaning, and value from the natural material universe. It cannot give you that. It cannot give you good and bad. It cannot give you right and wrong. It it cannot give you a sense of purpose or direction. Uh, 
the Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., he once, writing to a friend, said, if one thinks coldly, we have to admit that there is, quote, no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Then he said if he thinks about that too long, he has to go play solitude because it's just too much. Because we need a reason to live. But the material universe, it can't give us a reason to live, but so we create reasons to live. We all live for something because we all want purpose, meaning, and value. Some of us live for career. Some of us live for uh, a legacy. Some of us live for our families. But something gets you out of bed in the morning. Something causes you to derive a sense of meaning and value in life. See, we all live with a sense of purpose. But here's the thing about that. If you live for something, if you live for a sense, if you have a purpose in life, then it makes you vulnerable to something. Judgment. Because we're all going to evaluate our lives based on how am I doing in living for that thing? Uh, How am I doing at my career? And if you live your career, then you're constantly checking your life and whether or not your life is meaningful based on how you're doing at fulfilling that goal. Uh, It's why I don't get, you know, I mean, if you're, well, let's say that's career. If you're living for a relationship, it's the same way. If you have a great relationship and a good day in a relationship, then life is good and swimming and wonderful. But a bad day, not so much. And you wonder, why does it all matter? Anybody ask yourself, you ever ask yourself that question? Why am I doing all this? I asked myself that question the other day when I was doing the dishes. Like, why am I doing all this? You know why I asked that question? Because what I'm living for, I felt like wasn't actually going so well. See, we're all living for something. And whatever we're living for, we're always evaluating. There's always a judgment. There's always a standard. It's happening everywhere. We can't get away from it. And so we're always evaluating ourselves, and we're always evaluating others, and then we come into a culture that says, you know what we need to do? We need to be non-judgmental. And so, for instance, because of my back and some health issues, I've started going to yoga, right? Um, uh, Yes, there are forces of evil there, just like there are in the church. Uh, And I cling to Jesus, but I go to yoga, and (laughs) when I'm in yoga, they say things to me like, this is um, just, you know, make non-judgmental evaluations of your body, right? Take a body scan. I love to do that. And make non-judgment evaluations of your body, which I'm great at. You know the only problem is? I start judging myself for judging myself. How do you not? I'm being judgmental right now about my body. Oh, that's so wrong of me. I shouldn't do that. We can't get away from it. Do we really have? I mean, here's the thing. Once we've gotten rid of the idea of God in our modern world, and once we've gotten away from like traditional moral values, have we really got a less judgmental world in society? No. In fact, at least when it was traditional moral values like the Ten Commandments, that's not a moving target. You know exactly what to do and what the command is and how you've broken it. But now it's like, like, 
I thought skinny jeans were cool, and now they're not cool because I, you know, went over this age, and now I'm, th- and so now these people are looking me up and down and judging me, and like, who can keep up? And then you're like, you're judged as a parent or in your career, or, you know, you're judging your body and your looks and all your food habits and everything. And it's a moving target. Because it changes all the time. I mean, at least before, we had one standard. Everybody knew what it was. Uh, are we really less any judgmental, uh, any judgmental than we were? But, but you know what? Actually, the thing that I don't think people understand is this. Judgment is intrinsic to meaning. You see, see, that's the point. That, that is that... that that the very fact that my life is being judged means that my life is being evaluated by a standard because my life is important. It matters. To have a life of meaning includes a judgment. And that's why we can't get away from a judgment. That's why a judgment is actually good news. Let me explain. The Holocaust survivor, death camp survivor, Viktor Frankl, is a Jewish doctor and he he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he asked the question, in those death camps, how come it was that some people completely gave up on life, on their moral values, they would compromise with the Nazis, some of them would just kill themselves, while other people would remain courageous and resolute and persevere? And what he saw was this, that the difference was is that those who gave up were those who were living for something and it was taken away from them. They lived for their family and their family was all gone. They lived for their job and their career was never going to be had again. And then they had no sense of meaning, no sense of purpose. But those who lived for something that was transcendent, that hadn't been taken away, well, they pressed on. Because they knew that there was still going to be an evaluation, a judgment. In fact, Viktor Frankl used to galvanize people in the death camps by saying this, someone looks down on you right now. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a friend. And they would not want you to disappoint them. Isn't that interesting? Someone looks down and evaluates your life. And they would not want you to disappoint and that gave a sense of meaning and hope and a sense to press on. See, we need the judgment. Judgment gives us value. Judgment gives us meaning. And yet we're anxious about the judgment. So, so what do we do? What do we do with this fact that we can't get rid of the judgment and we need judgment and yet we're anxious about the judgment? I mean, how do we face the judgment? Well, that brings me to my third point. Our confidence at the judgment. John is writing that we might know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. That we have a vibrant, vital, saving relationship with God. A relationship that will take us through the judgment and that we'll be secure at the judgment. And he is writing, in other words, to give us assurance. And he gives us these diagnostic tests. And we've looked at those diagnostic tests over the past couple weeks. One of those tests has to do with this question. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he's the savior of the world? 
That's the first test. The second question is, how do you live in light of Jesus? Do you obey God's commands? Even when it's hard. Even when you disagree. Do you love fellow Christians? Even when they are hard. Even when they are disagreeable. Do you, how do you live in light of Jesus and, and what do you believe about Jesus? John says, you ask yourself those questions because those are the fruit, the evidence of a life that is in vital, saving relationship with God. They're not the cause of the relationship, but they are the fruit of it. They're not the basis of the relationship, but they are its result. Uh, you know, like, like my wedding wing doesn't cause me to be married, but it's the result of my marriage. Or the stains on my carpet. They don't cause me to have a five-year-old, but they are its result. John says these are the tests, but we give ourselves these tests and, and something can happen. John gives us these tests that we might have assurance, that we might know, but some of us, we, we run through these tests and we don't feel very assured. Anyone feel like that? You come through the last two weeks and you ask yourself these questions about what you believe and how you love and how you live and think, I'm not so sure. So the reality is, is that self-examination can lead to self-criticism, which can lead to insecurity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because some of you have false assurance. And if you have false assurance, your assurance is in the wrong thing. You don't have a vibrant, vital, saving relationship with God and Christ. And it's good for you to lose that assurance so that you might find assurance where it can be found. And the only thing that can give you true assurance, the only thing that can actually save you, Jesus Christ. But others of you That's not where you are. You have a very tender conscience and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in him. And you want to love him. And you want to serve him. And you want to obey him. But you look at your life and all you see is inadequacy. Inadequate belief. Inadequate love. Inadequate obedience. Inadequacy all the way across the board. And and you, you come out of the last two weeks and it's, it's surprising that you're even here. And you're like, what do I do? I feel like giving up, maybe you say. What, what does John have to say to someone in your situation? Well, we find the answer in 1 John 3, verses 19 through 20. He says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. What is John saying? John's saying, how do you gain confidence? You gain confidence by knowing this, that, that your heart is not the ultimate judge. God is. That your heart is not the ultimate test. God is. That, that, that what you think about yourself in your conscience ultimately is not the final verdict of your life. It's a practice test, but not the ultimate test. 
It's a practice test, and it matters in that way, but it's not the ultimate test. So when I was in high school, I sang in the choir. Time for you to laugh. And it was better than doing, like, art, the other kind of fine art, right? Because I would have had a D in that. So I, uh, and in choir, definitely the, the main benefit of choir is before choir practice every day, choir class, we actually, like, gave, like, we had a massage train going. So it was wonderful. Um, I got my five-minute massage in, and I always stood at the end of the line because that meant that you had one moment where you just free. That was great. And then sometimes I'd just switch to the other side. Um, but choir, it, it, we were coming up to the end of the year. We were about to enter the state competition. And our choir teacher was exasperated with us because we were not taking it very seriously. We were kind of joking around. It was a bunch of jocks in there. And then we were like, oh yeah, we've got to do this for state. And we would kind of joke around about that, and then she just got, like, really exasperated because we were bad. Like, we sounded bad. And, uh, and, and one day she just kind of walked out of class because she was uh, so upset. Well, then came, uh, came the competition, and we, we got there, and we're before there, and she's there, and she's just kind of already with embarrassment, right, before we even start singing. And all of a sudden, uh, we start singing, and her, her like, face goes like this, and then she goes like this, and then she's like, like, who are you? And apparently that day we kind of blew it out, and you can get one to five stars, right? And a four or a five get, like, moves you on to the, the finals and state competition, and we got a five, right? She wouldn't let us go to the finals because we did so bad before, but uh, she's like, you don't deserve this. We're like, what? We got a five. We definitely deserve it. But... The point of that being is, you know, when it really mattered, the final judge was actually not our teacher, right? Like, we had a practice test. We sang. She said we did horribly. We did do horribly. But when it came down for what we were actually training for, the ultimate judgment, well, we got a five. And their verdict is the verdict that ultimately mattered. It's not that her verdict wasn't important. But it wasn't ultimate. Well, it's the same way with our hearts. Your conscience and your feeling about yourself and whether or not you're a Christian or not, whether or not your relationship with God is vital and strong or not, well, that's not the ultimate indicator. That's not the ultimate verdict. God's is. God's on your life. And God, he knows. God knows. Verse 20, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever said. He knows everything you've ever thought. You know, that movie does exist, and God sees it. You say, wait a second, Kyle. How's that good news? Well, it's good news because God knows everything. He knows everything about you. And he knows how, how he set his love on you from before the foundation of the world. And he knows your name. And he knows how he sent his son to take on flesh and to live for you. 
He knows how for you he overcame Satan in the wilderness. He knows how for you he climbed up Calvary. He knows how for you he bled and died. He knows how for you he rose the third day from the dead. He knows how for you he ascended into heaven. He knows how for you he reigns and is bringing all things in submission under him for you. He knows everything he's done for you. And he knows everything that he's done in you. He knows how he sent his spirit into your heart and called you. And he knows the ways in which you have obeyed when you wouldn't have if you didn't know Jesus. And he knows the ways in which you have loved when you wouldn't have if you didn't know Jesus. And he knows the ways in which he has changed you. And he knows the difference Jesus has made in your life better than you do. He knows everything he's done for you. He knows everything he's done in you. And he knows that he will keep you. He knows that he will keep you. John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. See, God is great. And he knows everything. And he knows that you are his. And he knows that he will keep you. And no one will snatch you out of, your, out of his hand. Because Jesus, he said that all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up. I will bring them through the judgment. See, God knows everything about you. He knows how your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He knows how your name is written on the palm of his hands. And he knows how he has put his name on you and marked you out in baptism. So this testimony is true. That God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 So even if your heart condemns you, even if your heart condemns you, guess what? God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. So God knows, and that is good news. It's good news because... Because even though we've been found out in the judgment, we've also been found. Now, uh, about a year and a half ago, no, it was about a half a year now, there were some some folks that were working on a road doing some construction in Seattle, just south of Seattle. And they noticed that a manhole was slid off. It was ajar. And they thought, well, this is, this is a safety hazard. So they put the manhole back. And then later on that day, they noticed that it was ajar again. And so they were really confused. And they put the manhole back. And then they noticed it was ajar again. And they were, like, very frustrated because, you know, if someone falls in a manhole or if a car drives over that, that could be a serious injury. And uh, so they sent, actually, some workers uh, who do kind of... Uh, sewage and that kind of thing, down into the manhole. And there down in the manhole, they found 14 feet below things that belong to, to kids. There was, a, there was a, a dart gun, like a foam dart gun. There was a baseball cap. There were some binoculars and snacks and toys. There was a little pallet made of wood. And then they saw two 12-year-old boys who had been down there. 
those boys could have died. If the, if the sewage had built up, it could have suffocated them and died. And in that moment, those boys who they called that sewage their fort, that sewage thing, their fort, while they had been found out and were pretty scared that they had been found out, they had also been found. And that's good news. God knows everything. And that we have been found out in the judgment, and the judgment means we have been found out. God knows everything, and we have also been found. We have been found by him. So what I'm saying is this, that the ultimate basis for our confidence at the judgment is not the greatness of our faith, but the greatness of God. And the greatness of God's love. Look at 1 John 4.18. In 1 John 4.18, John writes, whoever fears, that the ju- whoever fears the judgment has not been perfected in love. Whoever fears the judgment has not been perfected in love. So how can we be perfected in love? That's the question. What John tells us, look in verse 16 and 17 of that chapter. For we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. By this, by this, what I just said, is the love of God perfected with us, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. See, how is the love of God perfected in us so that we have confidence of the day of judgment? Well, we have to look at verse 16. The first thing that he says is that we come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. But how do we come to know and believe that? Well, it's that little word, so, which points us back to what John said earlier. And what does he say? How have we come to know this? Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and he gave his son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we have become convinced. How have we become convinced? Well, it's not by looking to the places we normally look to. See, normally we think that the way that we become convinced of God's love for us is that we look to our circumstances. And we say, God, God must really love me because I got that job. God must really love me because I have a clean bill of health. God must really love me because he's given me the spouse. God must really love me. And we look to our circumstances. But, you know, the problem with that is then we also say, I'm not sure that God loves me. Because we didn't get a clean bill of health. I'm not sure that God loves me. Because we didn't get the job. I'm not sure that God loves me because I'm still single and I want to be married. I'm not sure that God loves me. John says, don't look to your circumstances. Look to the cross. By this we have become convinced. By this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son into the world 
to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't look to our lives. We look to his life and his gift, his gift of his only begotten son who died that we might live, who was cast off that we might be called home, who was excluded that we might be embraced, who was empty that we might be filled, who was made weak that we might be made strong, who was brought low that we might be raised up. This is what God did for us. This is the love that he gave to us. He was disintegrated that we might be made whole. And you know what that means? It means that we are forgiven in our sins. It means that we are covered in our weakness. It means that we are rescued in our addiction. It means that we are destined for his kingdom. This is the first way that we become perfected in love. We become convinced of God's love for us by looking at the cross long and hard, over and over, and meditating on how God's love for us is displayed for us there. But that's not all. Verse 16 goes on. Look at what John says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. See, this is how God's love is perfected in you. You actually not only look at that love so that you're so on the cross, that you're so convinced of it, that you know that God is love and he is love for you. You also abide in him. And this is love. That we, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. See, how is God's love perfected in us? We abide in his love. Well, what does that mean? Do you realize what the gospel is? And do you realize that the gospel is not just that God did something for you, but that God gives something to you? And do you know what God gives to you? Do you know what God gives to you? God gives his very self to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God gives eternal life for you, and this life is his Son. And in his Son, the fullness of God, who is love, comes to abide in you and to make his home in you. See, this is the beauty of it. The beauty of the gospel is that that the end result is that, that we abide, we are filled, we are surrounded by God who is love, perfect love. And when you abide in that perfect love, when you know that perfect love, well, then it casts out all fear. It casts out all fear at the judgment because you know that that he will keep you and that he will take you through. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. May it be so for each of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.